This week's episode of Inside Outside Innovation is sponsored by Glider. Glider is software that helps your product team put discovery at the center of your roadmapping process, helping you remove risk and drive value. Check it out at Glider, G-L-I-D-R dot I-O slash I-O podcast. Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger. And as always, we have another amazing guest. And I'm very much looking forward to uh, getting into this topic of discussion. With us today, Doug Branson. He has just written a book called The Future of Tech is Female, How to Achieve Gender Diversity. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you. Let me give a little bit of background to our audience of who you are. And uh, you're a prolific author. You've written, I believe, 23 books. You're with the W. Edward Sell Chair at, in Law at the University of Pittsburgh. And your latest book, This Future of Tech is Female, was quite interesting to me. Uh, obviously, the things that we deal with here on the show are innovation and technology and that. And it felt like a perfect time to bring you on to talk about what you're seeing out there in the world when it comes to gender diversity in the world of technologies. I guess the first question I'd ask is, how did you get interested in this particular topic and what uh, kind of led you to this new book? Well, I am the father of two daughters. And of course, I want my daughters to be able to do whatever sons would be able to do. But I've been doing this for quite a while. I suppose the original impetus I had a colleague who was a criminal lawyer, and she wrote a piece that was published in the Yale Law Journal about how women speak in a different register, and they have different ways of expressing themselves, more suggestive, more verbal hedges, and in criminal investigations, that might be misinterpreted. And so that, I thought, well, the same thing is true, maybe, in gender diversity, and then it turns out it is, you know, that dominant males attribute the way women speak and the way women act as having some deeper meaning that women are more emotional, that women are less analytical. And the linguists like Deborah Tannen at Georgetown proved that that's, there's absolutely no basis for that, but it's a myth that prevails. I want to kind of really dig into the topic. So we're hearing obviously more and more about the gender gap in technology, specifically in computer science. And that what are some of the stats that you've seen recently that can expose our audience to, to what's really going on here? I see that STEM is overemphasized, that STEM is a good thing, but that the 70 or so women who've been CEOs of publicly held companies or the 27 women who've risen to executive positions in information technology companies, which is very poor because that's out of a subset of 600 or so uh, executives in information technology. But it can't be lopsided. And of the 27 women in information technology, only two have STEM backgrounds. 25 have uh, business or uh, law backgrounds, mostly business. I think 70% of the women who've risen to higher levels in corporations have MBAs. And I think it carries over from males. You can't be lopsided. So the emphasis in STEM education produces lopsided backgrounds that may win people their first and their second promotion, but 
for the longer term, for those who aspire to go higher, it has to be leavened with some business background, some marketing background, some other issues, training. Yeah, I think you said you know, 5% of tech managers are female. That's such a low number. Is this a Silicon Valley phenomenon, or is this something that you're seeing outside of the Valley in that as well? Well, I think the subset of senior executives is Silicon Valley. The CEO is across a broad spectrum of Fortune 1000 publicly held companies. That is the 1,000 largest companies in the United States by revenues. So that's one salient feature. The information technology was used as a goal, not as a goal or objective, but as an example. It is the worst of all major industries. And it is counterintuitive because you expect it to be a cutting-edge industry, West Coast, and they really have the poorest representation of females in their upper ranks by far of any major industry. And one of the things they do is they people their middle-level ranks with foreign people who come in under the H-1B visa program. They bring in a couple hundred thousand a year. They want to expand the program. Most of those people come from India. And it's a dual intent visa. They can stay for three years, but at the same time, they can have an intent to go for permanent citizenship. And for the three years is an automatic renewal. This crowds women out. I mean, it crowds minorities uh, of all kinds, but women especially, from any hope of rising in a lot of Silicon Valley environments. And the H-1B visa is mainly used by information technology companies. But my book really is about how industries generally can achieve gender diversity. Heretofore, the emphasis has all been on what women should do. You know, women should get mentors, women should network, women should lower their voice. And very little, none actually, of the emphasis has been on what corporations can do. And so corporations have been able to get away with expressing noble sentiments. But where the rubber meets the road or the roll meets the butter, they've done very little. So I have about 15 different ideas in that book that I've gathered from doing this for 20 years that programs that companies could try. Beyond just the company, I mean, I think you mentioned in the book that you know some of the problems are created from the fact that females sometimes get a late start or are not ex- as exposed to young boys and like video games and other kind of programming in that. And, and so effectively behind the game when they get into computer schools or programs such that they are naturally behind that and it's very difficult for them to catch up. Well, it's a chicken and an egg problem, you know. Young women complain that the males uh, dominate computer labs, dominate computer clubs, are interested in subjects that don't interest girls like sports statistics and analyzing the NFL or the Major League Baseball. And it almost, I mean, there are, there are initiatives to institute at least some part of single-sex education that you should have a segment of the computer club that is solely populated by females, or you should have restrictions on the male use or monopoly of the computer lab, uh, those kinds of things. Women, when they do, younger women, when they do get into computers, do it much later and much more gradually. It's apparent, you know, you, you, you don't want boys or girls to be treated differently. You don't want boys to play with trucks and girls to play with dolls, but right. they tend to do that. 
Evidence shows, though, that parents, when they get computers, laptops or desktops at home, they put it in the boys' room. And they pretend, well, the girls aren't really interested. And so from the very beginning, at age six or seven, girls and young women are behind the eight ball. Mm -hmm. And then it continues with the things I've said. And then there's the whole nerd and geek phenomenon that's associated with young people and information technology that seems to be a turnoff to young women. And I don't have all the answers, but earlier parental involvement and equal treatment is important. Some element maybe of same-sex education, uh, single-sex education, excuse me, is important. And those are a few of the ideas. Is this more of a U.S. phenomenon? Are you seeing it in other places around the world? And what's your take on that? Diversity and corporate governance is toward the back burner in this country, where it's a very front burner issue in Europe and in many countries of Asia. I spend a lot of time in Asia. I taught at the University of Melbourne for 15 years. I would go down and teach their corporate governance course in the law school. And it's a very hot issue in Australia. It's a very hot issue in New Zealand. It's a very hot issue in Hong Kong. And surprise of surprises, it's a very hot issue in the People's Republic of China. The only places where it's not made any headway at all are Japan, mm-hmm. where less than 1% of the corporate directors and senior executives are women. In Europe, the big push has been, uh, at least on the continent of Europe, towards adoption of quota laws. Norway, which is not a European Union member, adopted the first quota law in 2003, saying that 40% of the directors of any publicly held company must be of the other sex. And then France followed, Italy, Spain, Germany, it's 30% rather than 40%. By contrast, the uniform of the United Kingdom, where it's a very big issue as well, they chose not to adopt a quota law. In fact, they're adamantly opposed to it. But there are a lot of different things happening across both oceans that don't seem to be happening here. Quite interesting. So let's let's dig into the book. You mentioned you've got some things that uh, you've researched that seem to be working and some things that uh, maybe are out there in the ether of people trying to do particular things that may not be as effective. So walk our audience through a little bit of what you found and and, uh, some of the insights that they'd see if they uh, pick up the book. Sheryl Sandberg, who's the CEO of Facebook, has gotten a lot of publicity for her book, Lean In. And She's been on the cover of Time. She's gotten honorary degrees. A lean-in is just a more sophisticated version of what's been happening all along with how-to and advice books. You know, do this. I tried this. This works. And actually, it's filled with some inaccuracies. It says the average woman who becomes a senior manager has 11 different positions on her way up. Well, if you do that, you're going to be known as a job jockey. Mm-hmm. And actually, my research shows it's a 3.3, at least for women who've made it as CEOs. Some of the things that won't work are quota systems, quota laws, quota regulations. I don't think that they would work in this country. In fact, I'm sure of it because, you know, in countries that are sons and daughters of the United Kingdom, we have a strong libertarian streak, whether we're Democrats, liberal Democrats, or Republicans, most of us think there are limits on what government can tell us what to do. So I don't think quarter laws 
or even in the ball game. Certificate and pledge programs, that happened in the Netherlands. It was very successful, and the European Union tried it, and it was not successful. It wouldn't work in this country, I think, because you need someone to whom the pledge would be made, and then someone in authority who would measure progress toward the goal and be the recipient of reports and maybe issue reprimands. And there's nobody, you know, we have kind of a free-flowing economic sector. Mentoring, I mean, uh, advice books over and over and over and over again. Get mentors, get, get a lot of them. But women who've had mentors say, I'd had a mentor for seven years and I'm still in the same level that I was when I started. So in Australia, they've started mentoring plus sponsorship. They have 100 corporate board chairs signed up, and and Australia is a much smaller country, so that's a significant number to sponsor a boardroom-ready woman, female, for a board seat in a publicly held company. So there are a lot of things that have been happening around the world that wouldn't work here, but there are a lot of other things that have been happening around the world that might work here. What would you recommend if today's corporations should be effectively taking a look at and, and maybe baby steps that they should be implementing to reverse this trend? I have chapters in the book. One is the work-life issue, easing the off-ramps and easing the on-ramps. And in this country, we have this attitude that childbirth and child-rearing are like playing a tennis game or running a triathlon. It's, you know, hobby kind of stuff. When it's really the most important thing that happens in our culture is birth of children, rearing children, and propagation of the race. One of the things that would encourage women to continue on the ladder upward is the ability to take time off for child rearing and maybe time off for child rearing uh, without suffering penalties, uh, therefore. So you ease the off-ramps and you ease the on-ramps. And really, it's statistically insignificant if a woman takes leaves of absence amounting to two years over a working life of 37 years. That's statistically indistinguishable from what a male would do. So that's one solution. And some companies are doing that. They have alumni programs. They have welcome back programs. They have expanded family leave programs. They have dial up and dial down uh, career progression tracks that people can use without penalty. Another thing is the structured search, which is based upon what Dan Rooney did in the NFL. That is, you have to include in the final shortlist a a minority member and have a real on-site interview with that person, not some telephonic uh, pretextual interview. And that has had good success in the National Football League. It's been expanded. It includes general managers. They want to include now offensive and defensive coordinators. So something of that nature stalled in a company that human resources had this had to or was subject to a regulation that they conduct a structured search. That would be a good idea. So those are a couple things, easing the off-ramps, easing the on-ramps, adapting requirements for structured searches. I got a whole lot of stuff in this book. (laughs) Yes, the book is definitely packed with both examples and, and things that you've seen. One of the questions I had was, you know, a lot of this is focused on what corporations can do and programs in and around that. And But beyond like HR programs and that, are there things that individuals can do within a corporation to help either with their department or in their own ecosystem help in this particular process? Or, or is it truly institutional 
types of programs and that that'll make a difference? Well, my focus has been mainly on institutional, but I suppose one of the things that can be inculcated within an organization top down is the idea of dignity and respect and equality for everyone. So that everybody, gay, lesbian employees, females, Latinos, Hispanics, African-Americans, everybody is treated equally, everybody has an equal opportunity, except where there is a definable biological difference. And there's only one that I know of, and that's (laughs) childbearing. So we make allowances for that. In that respect, allowances will be more forgiving for women. But otherwise, everybody's treated the same, and that that goes from the highest person in the organization down to, you know, the maintenance person or the chauffeur or what have you. So I think that that conversion to that uh, attitude is very important, and I think that a lot of companies do do that. I mean, much more today than they did 30 years ago. Absolutely. I think we're definitely seeing the trend. And, you know, I think just having the discussion, you you know, open newspapers and online resources and that and is becoming more of a, a discussion that it wasn't talked about, you know, five, 10 years ago. So that alone should help start moving the ball forward a little bit. Are there any other things within the book you'd like to let our audience know more about uh, what's inside and why they should pick up a copy? I'll give you two sides of uh, of the coin. One, things are a lot better, I mean, for females. Half the women in law school today are female. More than half of the students in medical school are female. About 40% of the people in MBA programs are female. Many uh, organizations that 40 years ago you would advise women not to go to Mm -hmm. are very accepting of women, and it's kind of a surprise. Electric utilities, oil and gas. I attribute that to the dominant males have daughters. So they realize what's happening around them and they look in their own household and they see their daughters and their capabilities and their energy levels and they say, well, you know, then they've changed. I have a chapter in my CEO book about one of the things women should think about is go where they aren't. You know, it's not for everybody, but if you have a little bit of moxie, go in oil and gas. I mean, two or three of the CEOs of oil and gas are female. Two or three of the four CEOs in the electric utility business, publicly held companies, are female. Our largest agribusiness corporation, Archer Daniels Midland, is led by a female. And that's one side of the coin. It's much better than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Now, the other side of the coin is things sometimes haven't changed. You know, that people in organizations look for people with charisma, and by definition, women don't have charisma. Higher-ups in organizations look for what are called 42 longs, people who can (laughs) play quarterback, people who can throw knockout punches. That excludes women. Forty years ago, Dominance in organizations chose people that looked like they did, you know, who right. wore rep ties and blue blazers and bought their clothes at Brooks Brothers and belonged to the same country clubs. Today, at least in Silicon Valley, we have a modern version of the same thing. It's not external, it's internal, but those in the dominant positions choose people who look internally like them, which is geeks and nerds who from an early age have been heavily involved in 
in computer technology, and they choose them, promote them, and so the glass elevator is is filled with people who at least look internally all alike, and that excludes, to some extent, women. Absolutely. Well, Doug, I do appreciate you being on the show and talking a little bit about this particular topic. If our audience wants to find out a little bit more about yourself or the book, what's the best way to reach out? The book is on Amazon, and it can be ordered from NYU Press, which has a website. People who are interested can email me. It's branson at pitt, edu, and I'd be happy to talk with anybody. Doug, I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for coming on it. Thank you for writing the book, The Future of Tech is Female. Go out and uh, grab a copy today. Thanks very much for being on the show. Great. Thanks, Brian. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.